Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this psalm. And even as we read it, we get the sense that there are things going on here that are huge and profound and we thank you. That's true in all of your word. May we listen humbly to it and submit to your word. Uh, We pray you'd shape us by it this morning. We pray that you would encourage us by it, challenge us, reassure us, draw us to the Saviour. We thank you for the way you shed light on our lives in the darkest places of our lives. Uh, You shed wonderful light from your word and thank you for the hope that's held out to us in your word and in the gospel. And we pray that we'd be renewed by it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I wonder if you have gotten, had, had songs that you've gone to in different seasons of your life. Uh, if you can uh, remember different times of your life where a song maybe really spoke to you and you listened to it over and over again. Uh, I remember as a 15-year-old and moving into state and my whole life was turned upside down and a song that I listened to over and over again and drew comfort and insight and wisdom from was a, and I don't recommend this, was a song, song by Guns N' Roses back in the time. I was looking for the solid rock to stand in uh, and I didn't know where that was. But um, there have been times like when my mother was dying where a song from Psalm 23 really was significant. So I wonder if you have those songs. And sometimes we sing songs where we repeat a well-known tune. If you go to the football game and you hear them sing uh, Glory, Glory, Man United or something like this in a familiar song. And we take a tune that's familiar and we apply good words to it. Often we apply good words like in this psalm. So he's taking a tune called Doe of the Morning. We don't know what that is, David, and he's writing a song. And there are songs for all seasons of life, aren't there, in the Psalms. The Psalm is a songbook, and it gives us songs for when we're celebrating. It gives us songs for when we need to be taught something. It gives us songs for uh, all kinds of seasons of life, and it gives us songs for the darkest seasons of life. The most despairing, seemingly hopeless seasons The Psalms speak to those. Now, one of the most common challenges to God, especially nowadays, is the challenge of evil, the problem of evil. If there is evil in the world, how how can we reconcile God being God and there being evil in the world? How can we make sense of this? This is one of the big challenges. And you know, the Bible doesn't shy away from this problem. In fact, whatever your worldview is, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic, or whatever, everybody has to grapple with this issue of suffering. And this psalm is probably one of the best places in the Bible or anywhere where we see uh, that the problem of suffering is most, the best dealt with in the Scriptures. When you come as a Christian to the Bible, you see that the Bible's not scared of this issue. It faces it head on, that the best place, the most light that is shared on this problem of evil is in the Bible. And we see that in this psalm. It gives us the best perspective and the most comfort in the midst of suffering. The gospel and the, the message of the scriptures is the best way, the best lens to view suffering. Now, Psalm 22 is a song of someone who feels abandoned. I wonder if you've ever felt abandoned. Well, David here, the writer of this psalm, feels abandoned. And there are actually multiple voices in this psalm, not just David speaking. There's a few voices in this psalm that we need to listen for. 
I'll just put these up and here's our outline. The first one is David's voice. So we're going to look at these voices. David's prayer, David's cry is the first voice in this psalm that we're going to consider. And we'll do a bit of unpacking, so that'll be our longest point. The second one is, I wonder, could you hear another voice in this psalm as we were reading? Whose voice could you hear? The voice of Christ. We're going to listen for the Saviour's voice in this psalm. And the third one is, we need to hear the voice of God's people in the psalm. Our prayer, our voice is in this psalm as well, because we're God's people. So we're going to look at these three. So the first one, David's cry, David's prayer. Now, the Bible is God's word. We know that. But he speaks through people. God speaks his word through people. Here, the person is David. So David is writing not just pure prophecy about the future. He's writing about his own experience. He's writing about something that's going on at this specific moment in his life. He's going through a horrible situation. And Jesus actually refers to the Psalms at different places. And for example, in Mark 12, Jesus says this, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared this. So David speaking by the Holy Spirit in the Psalm. Says other places in Acts, God spoke through the mouth of his servant David, quoting another Psalm. So God is speaking here in this Psalm through the mouth of David, but David's voice is in this psalm. What's his situation? Whatever it is, we can learn a lot from how David wrestles in prayer and this process of drawing near to God in prayer in the midst of this horrible situation. What's his situation? We don't exactly know. Some psalms tell us, might say, where David was hiding in the cave or where David was fleeing from Absalom. We don't know in this particular situation. It seems to fit with his early days after he killed Goliath and he's fleeing from Saul and he's hiding in caves in the desert and he's under threat and there's an army chasing him. I wonder if you know that story. He killed Goliath and God gave David great success in his military campaigns. Saul gets jealous. Saul's the king. He wants to kill David. He sends armies to chase him. David's on the run. And so you can see verses 12 to 16a, describe this situation for us. He says in verse 12, and he describes a lot of strong animals here. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. So David is in big trouble. Villains encircle him. Evil people who are after his blood are chasing him. Now, David's on his own. You know, when uh, David fled to this certain temple or this certain place of worship, and there were priests there who helped him at this town called Nob. And Saul found out about this and executed all of them. I think there were about 70 or so. So David's on his own. Nobody wants to help him. They're scared to help him. David is on his own. Have a look at verses 6 and 7. He's feeling hated. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So David is alone. He's in big trouble. Have a look at verse 11. 
Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. This is a really desperate situation. I wonder if you can relate to a situation like this. Desperate, alone, feeling worthless. How does David feel? Look at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. He's desperate, and he feels like God has abandoned him. Where are you, God? Why aren't you listening to my prayer? Why aren't you helping me? Why do you not respond to my cries? But look at verse 15. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. God, you've put me here. What are you doing? And why have you left me alone in this situation, knowing that God's in control? Why have you put me here? I'm feeling rejected. Verse 6, I'm a worm. I feel rejected. Other people, our forefathers cried to you and you answered them. I feel like I'm just a worm. I haven't been answered. I'm alone. I'm worthless. Now, can you relate to those feelings? If you've lived any length of time, I imagine you have. You can relate to these. Maybe not pursued by armies, but very real fears. Very real struggles and difficulties and hardships. How did you respond in that situation? How did you approach God in that situation? There's two main basic responses uh, to God in this situation. There's a movement toward God and there's a movement away from God in this situation. Now, David makes up this song to describe a movement toward God and we can learn a lot from it. So this psalm describes to us a movement toward God in the most desperate situation and a wrestling in prayer. And those who love God, we will wrestle and we will struggle and there'll be times when we ask these same questions. Why have you forsaken me? But God's people eventually, by God's grace, will move back to him by his grace, not by our own effort or getting our act together, but God's people by his grace, will move eventually toward him. But there's a wrestling that goes on in the process. What does the movement away from God look like? It's the blame of God. It's hating God. It's questioning his existence and saying, if God was real, he wouldn't do this. If God was real, he would act. Or if he's real, he must be a monster. This is the Stephen Fry response. We might have seen that interview. Bone cancer in children, what's the deal? God must be evil if he exists at all. And that's the common worldly response. It's a human-centered response. I have the right to my happiness. God has no right to interfere with my happiness, my agenda for happiness. Therefore, he must be an evil God if he interferes, or he mustn't exist at all. It's the, the heart that looks for satisfaction in this world. Doesn't want God, but wants this creation, wants what God has made, wants the wrapping but doesn't want the actual what's in the box, doesn't want the substance. Now, as followers of Christ, we can easily be here, and the Bible recognizes this. So verses 1 and 2 again, why have you forsaken me? The Bible doesn't tell us that if you're a Christian, you should never feel like this, and if you do feel like this, you should feel guilty. No, 
the Bible describes to us a process we need to go through in wrestling in prayer with God, and God will, by his grace, bring us to a, a good place. Now, think about Pilgrim's Progress if you've ever read that book. If you haven't, I highly recommend it if you can deal with the old language. But I highly recommend you push through the old language and read it. But he describes, and John Bunyan, and I mentioned him a week or two ago, was in prison at the time, and he wrote this book. He was in prison for 12 years, and he wrote this book, and he, this story of a, a man who becomes, becomes a Christian in his journey to the celestial city. It's all a picture of the Christian life. And it's not an easy walk for Christian in the book. He goes through the slough of despond, at this, uh, describing this really low period. At one point, he uh, gets caught in uh, Doubting Castle, and he's under the, at the mercy of uh, giant despair. And there's another time where he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and he's going through all kinds of wrestles. That's the Christian life. We shouldn't be surprised by that. The Bible's not surprised by that. But we need to learn this second way, this movement toward God. And it's a great example. So we're going to look at this movement toward God in the psalm. First of all, David clings to God, doesn't he? Look at verse 1. He says, my God. He's still my God. Even in the midst of suffering, he clings to him. He leans on him. And you can see different ways in, the, in this psalm where he describes what God is or who he is. Verse 3, he's enthroned as the Holy One. He's the king, and he's the saviour, and he's the creator, and he's his strength. So he relies on him, and he leans on who God is. There is a way to say, oh, my God. We, we hear that term a lot, OMG or whatever, whatever people say, but here's, a, here's the appropriate way to say, oh, my God, come near and draw near to me. It's a cry to God. That's the appropriate way to use that term. But there are three cycles in the psalm, and I think this is really instructive for us. There are three cycles in this psalm where David does the same thing. He looks to his situation, and then he looks to God. He looks to his situation, and then he looks to God. He looks to his situation, and then he looks to God. We can see between the start and the finish, he's come to a very different place. Look at the first cycle, verse 1 and 2. God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? And then he looks to God. Verse 3, yet you, yet you are enthroned. You are the one Israel praises. Our ancestors trusted you and you delivered them. They cried out and you saved them. So that's the first cycle. Here's my situation. I feel abandoned by God. But you, God, this is what you're like. Second cycle, the situation, verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm. I'm scorned and despised. I'm mocked, insulted. People say, he trusts the Lord, let God rescue him. That's verse 6 to 8. And then look to God. So look at the situation, then we look to God again. Verse 9, yet you, yet you brought me out of the womb. You created me. You've been my God since I was born. Please don't be far from me. Come near to me. There's no one to help me. So there's the second cycle. Look to the situation. Look to God. Third cycle, he does it again. What's my situation? Many bulls surround me. Lions. I'm poured out like water. I'm thirsty. He's probably stuck in the desert, in a cave, thirsty. 
You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, verse 16. My bones are on display. Verse 19. But you, Lord, he looks to God again, 19 to 21. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly. Deliver me. Rescue me. So you can see these cycles going on. This is really instructive. Do you pray like this? This is a great lesson for us. But look where David ends up, verse 22. Look where he ends up after this process of engaging, wrestling in prayer with God. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. So he ends up in praise to God. He ends up worshipping God. This is a, a massive shift, isn't it? He's gone from despair to praise. Now, his situation hasn't changed. His circumstances haven't changed. But a massive work of grace has gone on in David's heart. And he's in a very different place in his heart. He's praising and worshipping God. Look what he's doing. He's actually looking beyond himself now. He's looking up. He's looking out. He's looking beyond himself He's actually thinking about others. I'm going to declare your name, God, to the assembly, to the people. People need to hear about you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. He's thinking about God's people here, praising him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And then he's thinking about God being worshipped in the ends of the earth. Look at verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Wow. So he starts off despairing in his own personal situation, and now, oh, I long for God to be worshipped in all the nations. What a glorious God and Saviour he is. And he even thinks about the next generation. You can see that at the end of the psalm in verses 30 to 31. Future generations will be told about the Lord they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. So he's thinking way beyond himself. What a shift. Now, his circumstances haven't changed, but his heart has changed. And here's the key lesson for us. And I'm saying this as a learner. I'm not saying this as an expert. But here's what we need to learn from this psalm. Is in those most difficult situations of our life, when we're suffering the most intensely, what we need to learn the most is that in this wrestling with God in prayer, God gives us the grace and the eyes to see the reality of things. He gives us hope and he gives us eyes to see what he's like and what he's done and how he's in control. He gives us eyes to see the reality of things. This is critical. So we need to learn to wrestle with God in prayer and by his grace come to this place where we see things as they are. The problem in suffering sometimes is that we're seeing things through a certain lens that's dark and it's not based on truth. And this is the struggle for us. God wants us to see the truth. So God may not change your circumstances, at least immediately, but he will radically change your heart. What's the reality David begins to see? And here's a key verse. Well, look at, look at the change. Look at verses tw look, verse 21. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me 
from the horns of the wild oxen. Some translations actually say that you have saved me, that last part of verse 21. You have rescued me. So that may be the key shift. But then have a look at verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. So somewhere there, there's a shift going on. The change starts to happen. And what's the key realization? Have a look at verse 24. Here's the key realization. Put this up on the screen because it's such an important verse in the psalm. The reason for, the reason he starts praising God, he realizes this. He comes to see, God gives him eyes to see this important truth. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. What's the reality that he begins to see? God does care. God is here. God does listen, and God is with me. You see, he has heard. He has listened. Now, see the contrast? Look at verses 1 and 2 again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And then look at verse 24. He has not hidden his face, but he has listened to my cry. So you see the, the huge difference. He realizes the truth that God has heard my prayer. What's the most critical thing we need to know as God's people in the midst of suffering? What's the most critical thing you need to know? As someone who belongs to to Christ, and therefore is one of God's children. You need to know that God loves you, that he's with you and for you. He's with you and for you. If you're his child, it doesn't, it, regardless of the situation you're in, he is with you and for you. He does love you and he has saved you. This is the bedrock that we need to stand on in the most difficult situations. Now, the temptation for us is to believe the opposite. In these situations, the temptation is to think, God doesn't love me. He's not with me. He must be punishing me. And we go to comparison. We say, well, others, other Christians aren't going through this. Maybe God's more angry with me. or so, Maybe I'm just half God's child. How does this work? We, we, we're not thinking based on truth. God mustn't be dealing with me. Maybe he's got favorites. We start believing lies like this, or we, we go to comparison, or we go to the picture of the ideal. If God really loved me, this is what my life would look like, not this. So we're looking to our situation and our picture of what it should be. Either way, we're believing a lie. We're basing God's love for us on our circumstances. This is the lie we believe, that God loves me if my circumstances go great. If my circumstances don't, then he mustn't. That's the lie we believe in difficult situations or we're tempted to believe. We base God's love on our circumstances. Now, sometimes suffering is a consequence of our sin. Maybe we've done things that there are consequences for. You need to understand that even if that's the case and you've put your trust in Christ, he's not punishing you and he's not angry with you. The gospel... There's forgiveness for every sin if you've come to Christ. 
There's full forgiveness. He sweeps our sins away like the morning mist, he says. It's not, your sins aren't half forgiven. They're fully forgiven. So yes, there might be consequences for sin, but God loves you and smiles upon you in Christ. He's completely happy with you, even if there's consequences for past sin. We need to understand that. All right, that's David's cry. Now let's look at this second voice in the psalm. And that's the Saviour's cry. I wonder if you could hear some of Jesus' words in this psalm, as we were reading before. I wonder if you can hear some of his voice. Some people have called the psalms the prayers of Christ. Now, I don't think that's the whole picture. It is part of the picture. It's certainly there. It's not all they are, but that voice is certainly there. Christ himself, the Son of God, is speaking to us in this psalm. It's an incredible psalm in that regard. I remember as a new Christian, uh, I was just reading the psalms on my own one morning, and no one told I can't, couldn't remember ever hearing about Psalm 22, and I'm reading this psalm, becoming increasingly gobsmacked, amazed about what I was reading. This is incredible. No one told me about this psalm. So it's obviously you read the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know, I know, I've heard those words before. That's what Jesus said when he was on the cross. That got me curious. And then as I read more and more of the psalm, I see more references or words that speak to Christ's crucifixion. How can this be? David wrote this a thousand years before. How can this be? This is prophecy. This is prophecy of the Saviour. Now, prophecy is a bit like the opposite of an echo. You know, you stand in a valley or near a cliff and you call out hello or something and obviously you hear that voice repeated. You know, more and more faintly, you hear it repeated. Prophecy is like that in reverse. You get these echoes of Jesus prior to the event. And that's what we have here, these echoes of the crucifixion prior to the event. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 to 50. Now, we're not going to read this, but put a finger in Matthew 27, 32 to 50. Have a look at that. Just have a skim through that. I'll give you a little moment. And see if you can see any parallels. I'm going to ask you uh, kids club folks and youth if you're here. to. um, I'll ask you first, what are some ways you can see this psalm reflected in that passage in Matthew? Have a quick skim. We obviously uh, mentioned this first one in verse 46. See if you can find some other ones. Okay, first one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is on the cross. Matthew 27, 46 says this. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the first voice of Jesus that we hear in the psalm. Can you see any others? Kids, did you see any others? Benjamin, do you see one? Excellent. Yes, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I think this is, uh, we've got that one on there. Okay, we'll look at these in a second, but that's one. Do you see any others? Nathaniel. They have pierced my hands and feet. You can see that in verse 16. 
They pierced my hands and feet. Same. Yep. Just after that, in verse 18, you can see they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. You see any others? Verses 7 and 8. Have a look at verses 7 and 8 of, of the psalm. And then verse Matthew 27, 39 and verse 43. Verse 39. We'll go to this next slide. Those who passed by held insults. You can see in chapter 22, verse 7, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. And then what do they say? Look at verse 43 in Matthew he trusts God. Let God rescue him. Then come back to Psalm 22 and we see the same thing. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You see here in verses 41 to 43, it was the leaders of Israel saying this about Jesus. He trusts God. Let God rescue him. And then the even the criminals alongside him, either side of him, heap insults on Christ. And then, as Benjamin said, they divide garments. Look at verse 35. Just look at that one. Uh, they divide garment, my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So Jesus has this, um, he has items of clothing. Then they get to this seamless woven uh, undergarment that he had, and they cast lots for it. They rolled the dice for it to see who would get it. Now, John specifically in his account of the crucifixion mentions that this is fulfilling the prophecy in Psalm 22. So John 19, it's up on the screen, says this. John 19, 23 to 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment Remaining, This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Notice that last phrase, so this is what the soldiers did. This is the prophecy that had to be fulfilled. So this is what the soldiers did. Isn't that interesting? Why? It's because God already knew what was going to happen. He knew it was his plan all along to send his son to the cross. And in Acts somewhere it says that God did this. Jesus was crucified at the hands of wicked men by God's set purpose. It was his purpose all along. Jesus dying on the cross was not an accident. It was not plan B. It was plan A all along. It says in Revelation that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. Well, think about that. It was, God's plan. it was woven into creation itself that the lamb had to be slain. This was God's plan from before the beginning. Jesus knew all along about his death. He knew all along about it. God knew all along that his son was going to die, his precious son, on a cross. Now, a skeptic might argue, well, Jesus can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He probably knew this psalm and he was applying it to himself. That doesn't make him the Messiah. But there's a lot in this prophecy that was out of Jesus' control. Jesus had no control over whether people would cast lots for his clothing. He had no control over what they would say, let God rescue him. He had no control over these things. God knew. 
God knew that this was going to happen all along. God is telling us about his precious son and how he would die. And this is a prayer of Jesus himself through the mouth of David. You can imagine as Jesus was growing and reading the scriptures and gradually realizing more and more, this applies to himself. He sees it in the scriptures as he's learning, as he's sitting in the synagogues and realizing this is about me. What was happening to Jesus on the cross? Think about what was happening. Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that on the cross? No doubt he felt abandoned, but more than that, something was going on. Jesus was bearing God's curse on the cross. Jesus actually and in reality was stricken by God to the point where God had hidden his face from his son. Why? Because Jesus was bearing our sin on the cross. So he was under God's curse. God had hidden his face from his son. Why? So that we wouldn't have to be cursed by God. So that God wouldn't have to hide his face from us. We deserved God's curse and Jesus took it on himself. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or hung on a pole. Now, we said this a few weeks ago, to be blessed by God means his face smiling on us. To be cursed by God means the opposite, hiding his face from us. Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross, so we would never have to be forsaken if you put your trust in him. Now, what does that mean for us, especially in those dark suffering moments? It means... That because Jesus, it makes all the difference in the world, because Jesus has taken the curse, because Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross, we will never be forsaken by God on the cross. Now, Jesus wasn't ultimately forsaken. God delivered him and raised him from the dead. But you can know in the darkest suffering in your life, whether that's now or whether that's in the future or whether you can learn from past experience, God has rescued you already. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then God has rescued you and he does love you and you'll never be under his curse. You'll never be under his curse because of Christ. And he smiles upon you as a child. That's the bedrock for you in suffering. Now, there's no worldview that can give you that bedrock apart from the gospel. There's no worldview that can give you that hope. You can know that in the most hopeless situations that feel Utterly despairing that your hope is secure. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. By his wounds, you were healed. In Psalm 119.50, it says this, This is my comfort in affliction. Your promise preserves my life. The promise of the gospel is your comfort in affliction. Isn't that wonderful? Now go back to verse 24. This is key. Look, look at it now through the lens of Christ, not the lens of David. Through the lens of Christ, God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. Who is the afflicted one? Christ is the afflicted one. And what does it mean that God has not scorned his suffering or his affliction? It means the greatest reason you have for hope is that God has taken, 
He's, he's approved of Christ's sacrifice and he's applied it to you. If you've come to, to Christ by faith, God has not despised the suffering of Christ. Christ's death was not worthless to God. He will apply it to your sin and he will honour the death of his son and use it to pay for your sin. Does that make sense? He has not despised the suffering of his son. If you've come to Christ by faith, he will honour his promise and wipe all your sins away. So the hope you have in suffering is that God has listened and he's heard the cry of his son and he's not despised his suffering. There was a missionary movement back in the 1700s, uh, a bunch of people in Germany called the Moravians. And they took the gospel to places all over the world. They took the gospel to places like the West Indies. They wanted to reach the African slaves and so they, they went to these places with the gospel. And one of their, their catch cries that we still remember is, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. They would go to these hard places and their, their, their desire was that the lamb would receive the reward of his suffering. We want that sacrifice of Christ to be honoured in all the world. We want people to embrace Christ so they can have their sins washed away, that the lamb would receive his reward. What's his reward? For his affliction is all the souls that have been rescued because of what he did on the cross. So question for you, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, question for you is, Will you come and receive the exchange that Jesus offers you? The exchange of his life for your life. His sin bearing so you can be free from the penalty of sin. Come to Christ and receive the exchange he offers you. He paid for your sin on the cross. So come to him by faith that the lamb may receive the reward of his suffering and so that you can be saved. Now we learn something else from this prayer the Son of God suffered, this is an encouragement for us in suffering, the Son of God suffered more than any of us could ever suffer. More than you will ever suffer, he suffered more. He suffered God's full wrath on the cross, apart from the physical agony. And it's worth dwelling on the physical agony, but not too much because the greatest suffering was the curse of God on the cross. He suffered more than we'll ever know. And so it says in Hebrews that he's a high priest who sympathizes and he cares and he understands and he's been there and so he knows and he sympathizes with you and agrees with you in your suffering. He's not aloof, he's not distant, he's not unaffected. And so this is the best lens we can view suffering in so that we can come to the end and say, look at verse 31. He has done it. He's done it. He's rescued me. It's finished. It wasn't that the cry he said on the cross before he died. Rescue mission accomplished. It is finished. That's the best hope we can hold on to in our suffering. Last point, short point, our cry. So we can hear our prayer in this psalm as well. The prayers in the psalms are not just David's prayers and not just Christ's prayers, but they're the, they're the prayers of God's people. So they're our prayers too. We can pray them. And so we need to learn to pray the Psalms. We need to learn that these are prayers given to us by God for us to learn to pray and wrestle with God in every season of life. So they're given to us. They're a gift from God for us to pray to God. We need to learn to pray them every day. There's 150 of them. 
So you can get through at least twice a year, once a day, you can get through the Psalms and pray them. And sometimes you might read a Psalm and let's say it's Monday morning and you're getting ready for work and it seems like a pretty standard day and you're feeling okay, you know there's some things ahead of you at work and you read this Psalm about I'm surrounded by armies and whatever else and my life is under threat. This doesn't seem to apply to me right now. But you can learn, we can learn to pray these prayers and intercede for God's people all over the world. These prayers are for us not just to pray for ourselves, but for believers all over the world who are undergoing severe persecution, and as the body of Christ, we can learn to pray for each other. If your life's going okay, God's given you the capacity to pray for those who are in desperate suffering, and the Psalms can help us with that. So don't just think about how they relate to you directly. Think about how they relate to God's people in all the world and pray for your brothers and sisters just going to read this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a, a book called The Psalms, The Prayer Book of the Bible. He says this, There is in the Scriptures a book which is different from all other books in the Bible, in that it contains only prayers. That book is the Psalms. He says, It might be odd that the, the Psalms are God's Word, but yet they contain prayers. How can this be? And he says this, we can learn true prayer only from Jesus Christ, from the word of the Son of God who lives with us. Jesus Christ has brought every need, every joy, every gratitude, every hope of ours before God. All the prayers of the Bible are such prayers which we pray together with Jesus Christ, in which he accompanies us and through which he brings us into the presence of God. Otherwise, there are no true prayers, for only in and with Jesus Christ can we truly pray? So we pray, we, we, we're united with Christ and therefore when we pray the Psalms, we're praying, the voice of God becomes the vo our voice and our will is conformed to his. And so we're praying together with Jesus Christ. This is what it means to pray in his name according to his will. Now God knows that we struggle at times and so the Psalms are there for us. He, he knows it's normal to struggle. He knows it's normal to ask why. Is it okay to, to ask why, God, are you doing this? Jesus did it on the cross. It's okay. God knows this. It's okay to complain to God. It's not okay to complain to people. But you see all over the Bible, people, God's people complaining to him. That's okay. God's big and he can deal with your complaints. So go to him. Don't complain to others, complain to God. Wrestle with him in prayer. It's normal to ask God to change your situation. That's okay. Please take this from me. Didn't Jesus do it? Lord, if it's your will, would you take this cup of suffering from me? God said no. He had a bigger and better purpose. But it's normal to ask God. What's important is that you understand and trust that if he doesn't, that his response is better, his will is better, and Jesus will give you peace and strength. God may not change your circumstances, but he will change your heart, and he will bring you to a point of hope and peace. Now, what, this is what we do. We're almost done. Instead, what we often do is we, we believe our feelings, don't we? We actually elevate our feelings, and they become truth. What we do is we say something like this, I feel like God has abandoned me, therefore he has. So the feelings become the truth. I feel like God is absent. 
therefore he mustn't be real. I feel unloved and unlovable, therefore God doesn't love me. So the feelings become the truth. This is the lie we believe. I feel rejected by people, therefore I'm worthless. You see what we're doing? We need to go back to this psalm and see that, but you, but you, again, and go back to God, not just believe our feelings and look at the situation. I feel guilty, therefore I must be condemned by God. He must be angry. I feel like God doesn't answer me, so he mustn't be there for me. Now, we must learn to move from that to solid truth. And this is interesting. David did it three times, didn't he, in this psalm? Paul did it in 2 Corinthians 12. He had a thorn in his flesh, whatever it was. How many times did he ask God to remove it from him? Three times. I don't know if this is a coincidence or not. I don't think so. Three times I asked God to remove it and he said no, but my grace is sufficient for you. And he comes to delight in the suffering because it draws him closer to God. And Jesus did it in Gethsemane. Three times God removed the cup from me. And he comes to a point where he's at peace and willing to face what he's got ahead of him. There's something in this, I think. So whatever you're going through and you you pray, God, please take this away, change this. Wrestle. The, the, The invitation is for you to wrestle with God and he will draw you closer to him through it. And actually, we need to see suffering in this light. It always draws us closer to the Lord. I'll just give you one example. It's a small one. But in the last couple of years, I've got this ringing in my ears that increases, and it won't go away, this tinnitus, and it gets worse. I don't, I don't know if it's going to go away. I've asked God to take it away. It seems to be getting worse, if anything. But I'll say this much, is that every time I think about, when am I going to get relief from this, apart from when there's other noise around me, the only time, I think, is when the new creation comes. And so actually, what this does is it draws me back to the Lord independence and think, well, he's enough. And I look forward to the resurrection. actually draws me back to him. What we need to do, and I'm learning this too, we need to wrestle with God in suffering and move toward him in dependence. And he uses hardship to draw us closer to him. Now, I studied the life of David once early on in my Christian life. Um, My supervisor in ministry told me to do this. And one thing I learned that was significant was a couple of big lessons. And one of them was this. David was most intimate with God when? Was it when he was at ease in his palace? It was when he was running away from Saul, when he was in desperate situations, that's when he was most intimate with God. There's something in that for us. So the challenge, the encouragement for us in this psalm is move toward God in prayer, in suffering, wrestle with him and he will change your heart and bring you to a place of hope and joy. Have a look at verse 26 and close with this. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we feel so many things uh, in the the tough situations we find ourselves in, in life. All of us has a different story, each one of us. But Lord... We rejoice in this promise that you have paid for our sin, that you have not despised the suffering of your son on the cross, and that because he has suffered and paid for our sin, we can know for sure that
that you love us and you're with us and your blessing is upon us. And whatever suffering you bring into our lives, we can know this, that you're with us and we have this eternal hope that we're your children and you're bringing about a new creation and you intend for us to be in your kingdom with you. You've done, you've done it. You've done all that's required. So we praise you and we rejoice in you and we thank you for giving us this hope. We long for the world to know it. We long for the world to praise you. Know that you're a God who has brought hope in the most despairing of situations and makes sense of the horrible sufferings we see in the world and, and the hardships we see in our own lives. And so we rejoice in you and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took this suffering upon yourself and conquered sin and death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.